Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and as always, we've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off here uh, in just a moment or two with another great uh, round of Coach's Corner, and I've got two fantastic professionals, uh, both been on the show a number of times, uh, not only as a guest, but also on the Coach's Corner panel, so I know we're going to have a good show tonight. And then a little bit later, I'm, I'm really excited, as the guys uh, can attest to when they come on here. Uh, I've been speaking probably for the last 10 minutes about my very special guest tonight, uh, the affectionately known as the little pro uh, Eddie Marins. He's the uh, legendary golf instructor and a PGA hall of fame member, as well as uh, professional at the Bel Air country club out in uh, California. And uh, he's going to be joining me on the second half of the show. So I'm very, very excited uh, about that. And, um, but in the meantime, I want to thank all of you for tuning in uh, faithfully each week, uh, live uh, here Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 PM central. And obviously most of you know how to find us here, but just for those that maybe you're a little unclear, uh, we're located at uh, blogtalkradio.com, and up in the search key, if you type Golf Talk Live, that will bring you uh, here to the show, and as I said, it's live uh, every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central Time, or 7 to 9 for those of you uh, on the East Coast, and 4 to 6 Pacific Time for those of you out on the West Coast. Um, you can also uh, catch us on iTunes or Stitcher.com uh, under the podcast section. Again, just type in Golf Talk Live and uh, you can find us there and listen to it uh, whenever it's convenient. Uh, or, as I said, if you're on blogtalkradio.com, just scroll down uh, when you get to my page to the on-demand section uh, if you can't tune in live and you can listen to it there uh, on the recorded version whenever it's convenient for you. Um, but thank you for joining in for those of you who did live tonight. Uh, you can always speak to the guests or, or call into the show during the live broadcast on Thursday. The number to call is area code 646 Uh, or you're welcome to email me any questions or comments about the show to ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And if you're somebody in the golf profession and you're interested in maybe being a guest on the show, you don't necessarily have to be a teach professional or a coach. Uh, maybe you're an entrepreneur or maybe you've written a great uh, golf book that you think you'd like to share with the audience. Again, please reach out to me at to, uh, ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Always update, of course, on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and also on LinkedIn. Uh, dot com. My, my Twitter handle, of course, is Ted and Buck CEO, CEO being in capital letters. And uh, Golf Talk Live uh, blog is the link to go to on Facebook and, of course, LinkedIn.com. You can just search under my personal name, Ted Odorico, and you'll find me there. Um, as I said, I've got a couple of great professionals uh, joining me here on the Coach's Corner panel tonight, James uh, T. Kyle and Bill Abrams. And let me tell you a little bit about them, and then I'll get them on here live to, to join us. Uh, James, of course, is a PGA professional and owner of the James Kyle Golf Academy. Uh, he was also the 2014 West Central Chapter PGA Teacher of the Year, as well as the 2012 West Central Chapter PGA Junior Golf Leader of the Year. 
Uh, also received an honorable mention uh, in 2011 uh, as 50 uh, top 50 teacher, excuse me, with U.S. Kids Golf. And uh, also Bill Abrams is on the program tonight, been on many, many times as well. Uh, PJ professional and owner and director of instruction, uh, the Golf Solutions Academy, uh, Balmoral Woods uh, in Crate, uh, Illinois, as well as now at the uh, Golf Channel Academy at TPC uh, Eagle Trace in Coral Springs, Florida. And he was uh, recently named the 2017 Central Illinois Chapter Teacher of the Year. Guys, welcome uh, back, should I say, to uh, Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for having us, Ted. This is an absolute pleasure once again. All right. Well, I appreciate it, guys, and, and thank you uh, for, for giving of your time. As I always tell you off air, uh, it's not always easy. I know you guys are very, very busy and uh, sometimes have to rush home just to make it in time to get on the show. So I appreciate you doing that. All right, guys, we're going to talk, uh, got a sort of a mixed bag, uh, if you will, of, of questions tonight that I'm going to throw at you. And, and James, I think I'm going to, I'm going to start with you this time uh, just to, to mix it up a little bit different. And, and then, Bill, I'm going to have you uh, come in as well on, on uh, the question. And, and I guess the first question that a lot of people ask, and I think it really depends, uh, obviously, on the level of player, but a lot of people ask me this question. They say, how do I know what clubs to keep in the bag? Um, so, James, if you were going to advise uh, a player, let's just sort of whittle it down. Let's talk about uh, maybe a beginning golfer, and maybe an intermediate golfer. Obviously, we'll leave the pros out of here uh, for, for the time being, but maybe some of our beginning golfers and an intermediate golfer, um, what would you suggest or recommend that they have in their bag? You know, uh, beginning players, whenever you're getting them ready, you know, fitting them, they need to have golf clubs that help them get the ball in the air. So I typically uh, go after hybrids, <laughs> uh, Maybe it might sound crazy, but I actually try to start my building of their set with a hybrid and probably a few of them. And usually I try to start the hybrids at a six where it would take the place of a six iron uh, because they're great to get the ball in the air and the player typically enjoys that uh, easier club to hit from all conditions. And in the fairway woods, whenever I do uh, fit them for those, I rarely fit a three wood or even a four wood. I almost always start with a seven wood and maybe a five wood, depending on how strong they might be. Uh, driver, lofted, you know, more loft than not loft, 10 degrees, even some with 12 degrees to really, again, you know, those new players need to see the ball go in the air. Uh, irons. Sometimes graphite, but, but again, like you said, depending on the, the player you're working with, whether they're a man or a woman, you know, some of them need steel. And the set usually begins with seven iron and down to like a pitching wedge or gap wedge. And sand wedge for sure, probably not a lob wedge just yet because they're not going to be used to using it. Uh, that might be coming, you know, a little bit more down the road. Uh, but yeah, you know, beginning players those those hybrids that really all the companies are producing it doesn't even matter what product you buy they're just so good for those players without a doubt yeah and, and i agree and, and bill i want you to chime in on that and then actually uh, funny enough james you actually kind of loaded right into my next question and that was so bill i'm going to ask you this and but i, I want you to obviously yeah. uh, chime in on the first part of the question 
Um, but a lot of people ask me that uh, very same thing is also, should I change um, maybe my long irons into to, to hybrid clubs? Let's start with that. And then, or if you want to pick up on where uh, James was, yeah. was talking and maybe add some thoughts there and then talk about the hybrids as well. Well, I'll, I'll certainly ditto James on the, on the idea with loft. And, you know, that's one of the things that players have a, have a very bad concept of, that the, the club with less loft will always go further. There's a point of diminishing return depending on the, the club head speed and the ball speed you can create. Um, I'll see a lot of players that are intermediate that that six iron and the five iron go the same distance and even the four. So what we can do is we can consolidate one club there and, and utilize a hybrid there. I always feel that it's um, that it's the idea when it's time to change from long irons to hybrids is what I, I call an, an effective loft. Uh, of the shot, meaning that you can more or less attack a front flag without the ball rolling past the middle of the green with, an, you know, with, an, with a reasonable swing. So if you're hitting a five iron, that ball lands near the hole on the, uh, uh, on the front flag and the ball rolls over the back of the green, it's probably time to start considering a hybrid. And I think a lot of players fall into that category. And going back to what James said, loft is always your friend. If you're making an error, always go too much loft versus too little, because that, that you know getting the ball up in the air, there's a there's a false concept that that lower shot will go further, and that's not the idea. If you watch the players on TV, that ball goes very 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 high, and that's why they carry the right. ball so far. So you know that's the biggest thing. We're we're not talking total distance, we're talking carry distance, and that's what makes a player better. That being said, you know, going back to the no three woods, I take the seven woods, five woods, um, you know, we'll even fit them with, a, with an alternate shaft. I'll put a three wood shaft and a five wood to allow a player, um, you know, a little bit easier shot um, off the fairway, but also be able to hit it far off the tee. So, you know, a lot of it, again, is you have to get with somebody that understands the dynamics of the swing and, and how to, you know, how to fit clubs because, nobody's the same and that's the thing we have to we have to build into that player's thumbprint and the dynamics of their own golf swing yeah and those are uh, both great points guys you know you're exactly right a lot of players um you know think they can kind of just buy off the rack and maybe with a few adjustments here and really it's not the case i mean you know you're out there you've got 14 clubs in the bag um they're all there um fundamentally for providing a, a purpose if you will uh, in, in helping you achieve whatever goal you may have. One of the questions I have, and, and I'll throw this to both of you, um, and feel free, whoever wants to chime in first. I'm not going to uh, go either way. Um, but how much should, should there be between each of the clubs as far as distance? So let's say if I'm hitting, uh, and we'll just take as an example, if my seven iron, if I'm hitting 160 yards, if I'm maybe a little bit better player, or even 150 yards, how much of a difference or how much additional uh, length should I be hitting the next club up and the next club down? Should it be very close to one another or, you know, is five or 10 yards between clubs? Is that acceptable? Uh, your thoughts? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in on that real quick there. I, I think that's part of the problem too, is a lot of players mm -hmm. don't need every club in the bag. As I was uh, alluding to earlier, there's a point of diminishing return where they start to go the same distance. I think probably as yes. a general rule of thumb is a 10 yard gap. I would, I would say, and I don't know if James may take that a little wider or not, but especially with a beginning player, I'll take somebody that's a raw beginner and give them a few hybrids 
a seven iron, a nine iron, and a sand wedge, plus a putter. Because then they're going to learn to hit their shots. But, you know, the biggest key is that we don't have two clubs or three clubs going the same distance or roughly the same distance. Right. Yeah, right, that's, exactly. That's exactly uh, right. James? Yeah, definitely. Do you agree with exactly that as well, right. James? You know, yeah, many of those players, you know, where they they have already, and sometimes, you know, they've invested in clubs without us. And so they have a bag full of 14 clubs and the eight irons going as far as the seven, the six hybrids going as far as the five. And, you know, it's really just a waste. You know, there's three to five clubs in the bag that they're really just not ready for yet. And, you know, if you, you take them out of there and they don't have them trying to make a choice, it just makes it easier for them to, you know, get themselves around the golf course. Yeah, I agree. Well said. And and that's a you know that's a, an area that that often I think gets overlooked by a lot of players out there is they don't factor in you know what you guys were just talking about. And a lot of times there's duplication in the set, even though they have different clubs. Uh, a lot of times some of the clubs are going the same distance, and it, it's really a waste. They they need to have a, a better repertoire, if you will. All right, um, Bill, I'm going to start you off on this one, and and then um, James, by all means, uh, I want you to jump in as well. Um, but, you know, this is a, a common theme, uh, I think, that we hear out in the golf industry, in the business, uh, but there's a lot of information available on golf instruction. How does the average player whittle it down to what's useful? Uh, Bill? Yeah, that's that's a lot of that is incumbent upon the coach and the instructor, I feel, um, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of information. James and I are in a couple of um, Facebook groups and, and some blogs and things like that. And it's, it's amazing. Some of the things that people try to impress upon people that are physically impossible. I think the biggest key right, is when right. somebody's, you know, trying to get a, a good instructor and a coach is results. Find out from some of the people yes. that they've coached. Do they get results? Do they get lasting results? You know, it's not so much, you know, do they teach a great swing? Well, what's the definition of a great swing? Who's the one that's, that's perceiving this? What we want is effective and consistent. You know, if we can get a player to take their scores from what, was, what used to be a good score and turn that into a mediocre score and then they turn in and then they're getting better, that's the biggest key. And I think results is what we have to look for. It's not the beauty of the shots. You know, everybody's going to hit some great ones. Everybody's going to hit some poor ones, no matter what level you play. But the biggest key is that the coaches have to show people they have to be accountable and, you know, they have to be invested in that player, not just saying, okay, here, switch your grip a little bit and that'll take away your slice. That a lot of times doesn't do it. And that's, I think, what we're right. Person, I think where you're going with this is why people are averse to taking golf lessons. I feel it's you know they have to do a little research into the coach and really find out who they've taught and who how what kind of results are getting from that their type of level player and you know is it something that's going to last with me or is it going to be something that you know I have to come four times a week for the rest of my life to be able to you know even see a shot or two come off my handicap. Yeah, and, and that, you have to be very sus- suspect of that as well. If you've got to come three, four times a week for the rest of your life, um, you're, you know, my opinion, unless you're, um, you know, being coached for something specific, uh, I think you've got to be careful of that. Um, James, let me just expand a little bit on this because, um, you know, one of the things I think, too, that, that 
as players uh, or, or golfers out there as a general rule, I think there's an onus not only to, to maybe investigate the, the professional a little bit, but also they have to be willing to bring something to the table besides their, their pocketbook and their checkbook. Um, they've got to be willing to bring the willingness to, to be receptive to whatever they're being taught, um, but engaging and also be willing to take what they're learning from their coach or teach professional and put it into practice, not just show up for a lesson and then the club sit in the garage for two weeks until the next lesson. Um, what are your thoughts on that angle? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great point, Ted. Uh, you know, where the, the players – I actually have a few clients now that I see on a weekly basis, and many times – whenever they arrive to their next lesson the following week and I find, you know, I try to find out how they've done and they haven't been able to get out at all. And, you know, sometimes that's okay, but if the same right. client is in making not only an investment, but an investment in time and, and they, you know, when you're making that investment, you want results, just like Bill said, you know, and that, and that's the ultimate key, you know, if whenever you're getting results, you know, you're you don't have to market at all. They tell their friends, and you your your lesson book is always full. You know, the results are the key. But there's no question. I probably have a handful of clients now that they travel a lot, and they actually come and have their lesson, and they look forward to that. Uh, even whenever they haven't been able to practice, they're still you know here right. to to listen and get better. But if they could, you know, if they were able to get out there just that little bit more, you know, than the results that we're looking for on their handicap would obviously reflect that improvement much faster than than what they might be gaining at that time. Yeah, and I think one of the key questions, you know, um, as both of you know, you know, on Tuesday mornings I uh, co-host with uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller on the Women of Golf show uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And one of the things that we talk about, and Cindy – uh, really hammers this home is really we need as coaches and, and professionals need to ask the question up front. Um, and this is going to lead me into the next question. Um, but we need to ask the why, why they're there in the first place. If this is just a social thing for them, they don't really care if they get a whole lot better. And, you know, it's just a, a way of maybe getting in, in a group lesson or, uh, you know, maybe they just want to get out of the house uh, once a week. Um, you know, that's okay. But if they're sincere about really improving their game and, and wanting to get better, then we need to understand as coaches the why they're there. What is it they're looking what, – what are their goals, short and long term? We need to, to help them uncover that. And if they're unsure of what they are, then we need to help guide them as best we can based on the information they're giving us. And this brings me to the next question. And, James, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm throwing it back on you first, my friend. Um, okay. You know, I've been asked this question. I've been asked this question um, before myself. You know, I'm a newbie. Uh, you know, where do I start? How do I start? You know, I, I want to play golf. I've never played before. Um, you know, don't know a lot about it. W what's the four one one? How do I how do I start? Uh, you know, my journey in, in golf. I start all my newbies uh, day one on the range and hitting short clubs, sand wedges, pitching wedges, probably up to 7-iron. And with that, uh, I'd get them on the golf course as soon as possible. So for me, it could be day two of our lesson program. And my particular lesson program for a beginner, I have a, a five-lesson program. 
to help them get going. It usually lasts about 45 minutes. But as soon as I can get them hitting the ball uh, off of a tee, I use a tee a lot at the beginning for all the newbies, uh, I actually take them straight to the golf course, and I try to do so by lesson number two. And we actually go close to the green. Instead of playing, you know, necessarily right from the tee box on a lot, you know, to make it too difficult, I go a little closer to about 100 yards, and we work on having a certain score, say like we try to make a four or a five, uh, and we work our way backwards. So I, I try to get the new ones on the course as soon as possible because there's something about that uh, feeling that they have that they're on the course already. And, you know, I go out, obviously, where there's not other play around. So if I'm in the morning, I go backwards sure. on the back nine. Uh, but it's amazing how hooked they are literally on day two because they were on the course. Even if they didn't, you know, hit the best shots, but they have one or two that they hit in the air. They get on the green. They, they hit a couple of putts. If we get two holes in, great. But if we don't, it's no big deal. And typically after that, they're, uh, they're in my lesson book for a while. Yeah, uh, and and that's a, that's a great way to start. Uh, Bill, what about yourself? I mean, you, you know, uh, again, going back to what I said earlier uh, in the earlier uh, part, um, you know, obviously we need to have a conversation. We've got a new player that's coming out. We want to make sure that they're prepared and that they're committed. So what are your thoughts on, on how do we handle a, a new player uh, to the game? I uh, I got to agree with James uh, wholeheartedly on the ideas of getting them close to the – close to the green on the golf course because I tell you what that you have the hook in once they see the beauty of that place and they can hit shots and realize they can be successful now all of a sudden you've got somebody that's going to be extremely committed and I think that's a big key that we miss out sometimes we you know yes we do have to spend a little time on the range at first or even around the green in the pitching area where we're hitting 50 60 yard shots they all of a sudden see that ball flying up in the air and going in the direction they're expecting it. That's, that's, that's a huge amount of progress and it builds so much confidence with them. One of the things also, when we get to that little, that little next step with that, that player that plays, you know, maybe once a month, twice a month, that's the one I find that that's very difficult because so many times the newer player, they're putty in our hands and we, we want to know why they're there. They want to play with their friends. They want to play this. They want to play right. that. That's the easy one. Now it's the next one that that's, doesn't play a ton but wants to play a little bit better. I always go through, I don't want to say it's a long interview process, but I ask them a lot of things. We have about a quarter of a mile in Chicago between the clubhouse and the range. So I ask them, I really pick their brain. And the last question mm-hmm. I ask, if I could, what one shot will make you play more golf? If you hit one shot, if you master one shot, what shot will that be to make you play more golf? It may be the driver with some player. It may be hitting a wedge shot. It may be putting better. It may be mastering their mm-hmm. irons. And I think that's something that we, we forget so many times. We get somebody that's got moderate ability and, and has played moderately, we want to take them right away. You know, I hear somebody goes, well, we have to start working on the, right at the hole. We have to putt first. Well, if, if I've got a gentleman that, that you know, gets off the, the late shift and he gets out to the golf course at 7 in the morning, he has an opportunity to go play. If he hits his driver's trader and doesn't lose balls, he's going to play more. we got to get that taken care of hmm. first. The rest we can kind right. of get and step. And we have to be very sensitive and listen. You know, when I, I tell younger professionals, I said, we have so much technology today, 
We fail to realize we have two of the most wonderful pieces as coaches, our eyes and our ears. And we do not use, yes. we use our eyes. Some of the younger professionals and a lot of professionals in general use their eyes decently, but they don't use their ears. And I think that's something right. that lets the player know that we're invested in them. I don't worry about anybody else. I worry about that player and their spikes standing on my lesson tee. And I want to make sure that they're going to be leaving there very happy and feel like they're accomplishing things and, and getting better and enjoying the game. Absolutely. Yeah, that, and that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we listen. I can't agree wholeheartedly. And, and I'm certainly all for technology. I think it's great. Um, but I've said uh, many, many times on the program over the years that if we rely too heavily on the technology, you know, one of the worst things that I've seen, and I've seen this sometimes, you know, just nonchalantly, you know, drifting into a pro shop somewhere or into a, a facility, and, and I won't, you know, tell them who I am or I'm in the business or anything like that. And, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to say this as a criticism, but I'll actually watch the pro, and he's, you know, in front of his machine, and he's not even looking at the student. And he's purely mm-hmm. watching through a monitor. And there is a time and a place for that, but if you never even look up and, and make eye contact with a student or actually listen to what the person's telling you, um, then you're doing a disservice, in my opinion. And I think you're right. I think that we have to get back to, um, and this is something that we need to instill a- into the next generation coming up, is that they understand that, yes, let's use the technology to our benefit, but let's also make sure that we understand that the person standing across from us or beside us is a human being. They're not a machine. So we need to be cognizant of that. Um, exactly. Bill, take exactly. It. And I, yeah. yeah, I just had one little sidebar on that. Exactly. And sure. I think that's the thing. The application is, is one of the things when we have that personal engagement. It's not what you tell them. It's how you make them feel. When they start hitting that driver or that wedge the way that they expect to, you've made them feel wonderful, and they're going to embrace this game even more. Yeah, one of the I think one of the biggest fears, particularly for female golfers, uh, especially coming out, um, it, they're already anxious enough, um, especially if they've never played before. They're new to the game. Um, they they know that traditionally it's been a male-dominated sport for many many years, so they already have a preconceived notion. Okay, that you know I'm I'm coming up uh, into the pro shop here. I'm trying to you know I've got a lesson today, so they're already a little bit nervous. And if they sense, and believe you me, women have incredible sensory perception, if they feel that person is not engaging or listening to what they have to say, their concerns and that, right away you've lost that, that student. You might as well you know, say goodbye right then and there. They want to know that you're listening to what they're saying because first off, they're trying to understand and learn something that they've never played before um, and they're already a little bit behind the eight ball because they already have that preconceived notion that this game is not for them or traditionally has not been for them. So we have to get over those hurdles. And one of the best ways that you can do that is to listen to what their concerns are, what their needs are and what their wishes are and what goals they may have. Uh, and then build from there. Uh, great answers guys. Um, Bill, take a deep breath and we're going to go on the flip side of that question uh, we don't have a newbie, but we've got, and I know we've kind of asked some of these before, but uh, it's always good to, to keep them fresh, I think. Um, uh, we've got a player that maybe hasn't played in several years, um, but maybe they saw something on TV, were talking to a friend, and uh, kind of gotten bitten by that bug. So they want to know, 
how do I begin again? So they've maybe played for several uh, years of their life, stopped for several years. How do we jump fire their, their enthusiasm? You know, I think that's a great thing. And, you know, we always worry about the growth of the game. If I can go on my little soapbox here for a moment. We have a lot of players sure. that used to play four to eight times a month. Now they play four times a year. We have a trained yes. segment there that we can get after. And these are the guys you're talking about and the gals you're talking about. If we can get these players to play two more rounds a year, think what that, you know, the millions of players that have done this, if we can get them to play two more rounds a year, what, that, what impact that's going to have on the golf industry? Biblical. Oh, it's going sure. to be so huge, it's not funny. And I think that's one of the things that we have to go to. And, again, it goes back to what you were saying, listening, Ted. Listen to what they did well. And listen to what their shortcomings were. Get that part that they did well, get that back right away. And it won't take very long to do that. Then we can start to work on the, on the areas that, that were a bit of a troublesome for them. You know, if they come and say, well, I was a very good iron player. Okay, and I played to an eight handicap. Now I'm like a 20 and I haven't played. We, we work on the irons. We make a little tweak here or there. Get them hitting those shots really good. Now their confidence is back. That's the biggest thing. It's, again, how you make them feel. You get a player like that, you get them confident, look out. They're going to get back at it, and they're going to get back at it hard. And, you know, I, I can't – I'm not trying to disparage other people, but you have to listen. It's not what I want to tell you. It's what, you, what they need to hear to make them play better. And, it, you know, again, it's pretty simple. You know, I've seen players on the range. They're rolling the ball. They haven't played much. I said, okay, let's just – let's take a little look at your setup here. Let's look at your balance. And all of a sudden, they're right back to what – that's the way I used to hit it. I said, well, that was, that was like uh, pulling teeth without Novocaine, wasn't it? It was pretty <laughs> – that was pretty painful. And they're like, no, it wasn't. I said, well, now let's go work on that wedge play that you used to struggle with. And it's, you know, it's amazing yeah. how we have to be very sensitive to the player. We don't have to tell the – you know, they don't want a lecture from us. They don't want to know all the physics and everything else. You know, yes, there are some people that want to hear that. They want to hit better shots. They want to score better is simply put yep. what we need to impress upon our players. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I, I, James, I'm going to let you uh, chime in on that as well, but I want to go back to something that you started, but obviously Bill uh, agreed with as well. Um, and that is with you know a lot of new players, we want to get them out to the golf course um, fairly quickly uh, when, when we start working with them. And, and, you know, I was just sitting here thinking about that, and I was sort of applying it to, sort of another analogy. I mean, we all remember as youngsters, uh, you know, uh, some may not, obviously, in, in, in the current generation, but our generations anyways, um, you know, when we first learned how to ride a bike, of course, many of us maybe had training wheels. Well, optimally, we wanted to get those training wheels. You know, my, my father, when he taught me learned, uh, you know, how to ride a bicycle, you know, I had those training wheels as a kid. And he wanted to get those off as quick as possible because he wanted me to feel confident and get over that, that fear. And it really equates to getting people out in the golf course. If we spend so much time with new golfers on the driving range and they haven't been out in the golf course, by the time they get there, their anxiety has built up so much and anticipation and fear starts to creep in that they're actually afraid when they get out of the golf course because they've never experienced that. So I like the, the analogy that you both put in there. Let's get them out there as quick as possible. Yes, we need to do some range time to you know, get things tuned up. But let's get them out as quick as possible out in the golf course so they overcome that initial fear and anxiety and are actually looking forward to getting out there instead of spending several weeks on the range or on a practice facility 
before they even step out in the golf course. Uh, agree or disagree? Totally agree. Absolutely, ten thousand percent agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean that goes would. to ju- that goes would. to juniors as well. And I think that's one of the yeah. things that we've missed with a lot of these junior clinics. Um, we don't get them on the golf course fast enough. We need whether it's just yeah. getting out there ten yards away and the little people hitting a shot. Oh my goodness, that's just. Yep. I mean, that that is because the range is one thing. That's a beautiful place. The, the practice area is a, sure. a beautiful place. That golf course is is the mecca. That's the place. That's yep. when they get out there. That's, right. that's when the hook gets in. Yep. Oh, for sure. That's right. Um, <clears throat> James, let's let's go back to to uh, the last question I gave Bill, and and I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of similar uh, uh, thoughts and input to it. But you know, we've got a lot of players. He raised an interesting point. We've got a lot of players out there. I mean, I've talked to people who have actually studied. Um, you know, some of the, the country clubs out there and their memberships, obviously for various reasons, uh, you know, have dwindled down over the years. But of the, the current healthy membership that they've got, there's a lot of guys and gals out there that are not playing very regularly. And we need to re-engage that. You know, we're always looking for new golfers, but what about the ones that are already there? Um, you know, what do we do to get them fired up and get them back out in the golf course? Well, actually, I have a couple of those right now that I uh, just started working with who have recently retired, you know, in their mid-60s and haven't played golf for a really long time. And one of the guys, uh, actually, he and his wife are working with me. And it's really the same thing, you know, that they haven't played in years. And, you know, you, you have to get them onto that course. Um and feeling like they can go out there and join other couples or other friends at the club and not be intimidated. And I, I would even say there's a good number of men, especially those who haven't played in a long time. Uh, one of the guys I work with, you know, he, he's actually not playing right now because he wants to improve his swing and his game so that he's not embarrassed to be out with the other guys. And, and meanwhile, he's actually better than some of them but in his mind, he doesn't feel like he's ready. And, and we know that, uh, you know, not to say it negatively, but, you know, our girls, uh, no matter how much they've played, so many times they're nervous to go out on the golf course or, or make a mistake in front of, you know, the, the folks that they're going to have dinner with that night at the club. And trying to figure out and, and getting them out there showing them that they could actually hit a shot over the lake and they don't have to worry about it and hit a good tee shot here and there and, and, and score, uh, you know, maybe they're not going to make a par, but let them know and that they, if they make a double or a triple bogey on the hole, well, uh, lots of the other members at the club are doing the same thing. So, you know, I think a lot of times they, they just have a, a little, a notion that they feel like they're, they're afraid and they want to be confident, like Bill said, and you just have to get them out there and, and show them that they can actually do it. And they'll absolutely, as soon as they hit those first few shots and get back into it, they'll realize that they haven't lost anything. They can still hit the golf ball uh, and and not be nervous to be out there with the other folks at all. Yeah, and, and, and well said, James. And and that goes back to what I mentioned a few moments ago, guys, is is that anxiety that a lot of people, not just the new golfers, but even 
golfers that maybe have played, uh, you know, 20 years and have stopped for one reason or another, um, getting back out there, that anxiety, uh, you know, creeps in there again. And we need to, you know, this is where listening to, uh, you know, our golfers uh, is, it becomes critical because a lot of times they will tell you, they may not tell you directly, but indirectly, if you really listen to what they're saying, you can almost hear the anxiety in their voice. You know, I'm not really playing mm-hmm. that well right now. And, and, and so you know that they're uncomfortable. So how do, you know, this is where it goes to what you just guys talked about is, you know, how do we make them comfortable again that they're willing to get out on that first tee? Because even for the best players in the world, they'll tell you, you know, week in, week out, you know, certainly they're a little bit more comfortable, but they even get a little bit nervous sometimes, especially in a big event. So um, nerves are okay, uh, but it's how we handle ourselves out in the golf course. Um, Bill, I want to flip back to you with a different question. Mm-hmm. This is one I've had before. I'm I'm sure you guys have had this as well. Um, you know, we've got a player out there, um, and maybe, you know, he's he's married and has a couple of kids, but he's the only one in the family. He says, I, I want my family to be a golf family. Uh, mm-hmm. Any advice? What would you tell him? How does he get the rest of his family interested in the game enough that they want to go out and, and maybe take part? Make it a family event. This is, you know, this is the era of family again. How do we get everybody jazzed up and say let let's get everybody uh, you know out playing golf as a family? Well, it, it, in, in my estimation, the things that we've done, we uh, you know I've, I've always tried to to keep, especially later in the day, I'd rather have one car getting pulling in the parking lot with five people getting out than having five cars with one person getting out, and that's the family dynamic. Um, there's definitely a yep. lot of programs and a lot of courses are running now. Ours, uh, uh, Balmoral Woods in Illinois, we do something two bucks a hole after five at night all summer long. So, if, say, if a dad right. comes out, uh, costs him $6, all the children under 12 play for free. If they don't have clubs, we have some U.S. Club, kids clubs there. So we make it extremely affordable. But, you know, getting that, they're giving those opportunities. And, unfortunately, a lot of times those opportunities aren't available. We need to try to create those, whether it's family clinics, whether it's junior play days. We do a junior play day on Sundays, and we'll allow um, the the folks to come out and play with them. I mean, it's just, you know, that's the type of thing. Because, you know, for the simple, you know, not to go back into a religious idea, but I always go, the play, the family that plays together stays together, <laughs> for lack of a better yes, term. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's something, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to have that, that kind of, I don't want to get on my soapbox again and sound like the reverend on Sunday, but that's the, the kind of things that we have to be able to do and be, be open to as, as, course, as, as coaches and then impress that upon our, our operators that they have to do these type of things because this is, this is what's going to build their future, their future players. You know, we seem to get into a point now with our, with our juniors, the guy wants his family to play or the mom wants the family to play and the others don't, you know, we always seem to want to take these kids and and try to get a scholarship out of them. But, you know, the, the, the honest truth is in this business, if we don't get every kid a scholarship, that's fine for the game. What we need to do is find these kids that are going to shoot. They may shoot 81 might be their best round. But they're going to play Saturday and Sunday every week. They're going to play eight rounds a month plus two times during the week, ten rounds a month. That's what we need to build. I mean, that's what's going to yeah. give the game the gusto and it's going to last forever. And I think that's the biggest kid. The kid-friendly thing with the family 
given them a lot of options to be able to come out to the club and enjoy themselves. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that's been, it's been a, a detriment at times with some of the course owners and some of the clubs. They don't want the kids out on the golf course. Well, guess what? Right. Y'all are going to die. Some, y'all are going to die someday. <laughs> you know? And this club is not going <laughs> right. to survive unless we have a new, a new players here and, and sooner the better. Yeah, unfor- you're exactly right. And unfortunately, the the, the mentality uh, of – and I'm certainly – let me just preface this. I'm, I'm certainly not blanketing everybody because I know there's a lot of great efforts going out there. But traditionally, the, the country club mentality was, um, you know, the man joined, the, the, the wife, you know, his partner, of course, was, was eligible to, to attend different functions. Um, and there might have been some key functions here and there where the kids were, in, were invited to, to join in. But traditionally, it was a couple's thing. Um, they might have some dances. They might have some special functions, uh, that sort of thing there. But it was sort of a hands-off policy. The problem is, you hit it right on the head, uh, Bill, is this. You know, the next generation's coming up. One of the, the, the downfalls of our industry is the perception that a lot of people have had for, for years is that it's an elitist sport it's not for me. It, you know, nobody's asked me, nobody's inviting me. Um, and I know there's a lot of great folks out there that are changing that, but it needs to happen on a national and it needs to happen a little quicker because I've spoken to a lot of people. I've had guests on the show that have point blank come out and said, this is one of the problems with golf is the perception uh, is that I've got to be, you know, I've got to go for that scholarship. If little Johnny uh, or little Susie says I'm interested in golf right away, they're trying to funnel them into, you know, their college career. Uh, on, on the mm-hmm. golf team. Well, maybe they don't want to play collegiate golf. Maybe they just want to go out and have some family fun and they just happen to see somebody on TV playing golf and, hey, that kind of looks cool. I'd like to try. So let's back off, uh, James, a little bit. And as Bill said, let's not funnel everybody into the same platform and let's just make some family fun time again. W- what are your thoughts? No doubt about it. You guys are exactly right that most likely all the clubs that are really successful now, whether they're private or not private, uh, they have changed their programming uh, and made it more for the family, without a doubt. And I'll even commend my own facility because they have done just that. Uh, You know, we have... family days where they go out and play nine holes, nine and dine, you know, instead of it just being husband and wife, yep. it's a family deal. And and on the golf course, we have kids' tees. And, you know, and, and it's set up for them already. And then uh, you actually, what you all are just talking about, actually just gave me a couple other ideas, you know, thinking about the history of golf courses and, you know, there years ago, whenever I used to work uh, out of the state of Florida, there were golf clubs, you know, where certain, you know, like ladies couldn't play until after 1 p.m. on a Saturday or Sunday. Right. And, you know, right. all of that has obviously changed for the most part, uh, you know. And But, yeah, how do, we, how do we, instead of it just being like Saturday morning as all the men's groups will, you know, why does the Women's Golf Association only play on Tuesday? Or, you know, why doesn't every weekend have like a little junior golf association going where there's a little block of times that, you know, they're open for the kids to go out and play and be chaperoned by parents if necessary. 
uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's ideas to engage the entire family. And there's no doubt if we, if we get uh, dad and mom and the kids even interested a tiny bit and they weren't yesterday, then that, you know, is a huge difference economically for our business uh, and survival of the game for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, let me just say this, um, you know, to the folks listening out there, you know, obviously there's been a lot of great strides made in, in the golf business over the years. I, I don't want to take away from that. We still have a few more hurdles to get over and, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll start moving in that direction here uh, very quickly. But one thing that I think that the industry still falls a little bit short on, just kind of what you were touching on there, James, I'm just going to kind of expand it, is I don't think the golf industry just realizes the purchase, and I'm going to put quotations on that, the purchasing power that women have in the marketplace. Um, no doubt. So much of the media and so much of the marketing is, is going to still to the guys. You know, let's get that new driver. Let's get that. But the truth of the matter is, dollar for dollar, women buy more consumer goods by far, and that's not a criticism, but that's the truth, than any man. And why the golf industry would not want to embrace and get more women playing in these golf courses, um, because women will traditionally, if obviously there has to be value there, but will purchase more um, then the men will. I mean, men are lucky if they get a golf shirt or two a season. Uh, usually it's a Christmas gift or it's, it's a birthday gift or something where they might see something. Women will go out and buy several outfits, um, right. you know, just to play mm-hmm. the same week. And that is a lost marketing potential for the golf industry. And they need to change that attitude. And the only way that women are going to do that is if the industry as a whole is going after them, and I got to give props where props are due. Uh, due is the uh, the LPJ organization has really over these last several years really stepped up those efforts, not just to get players out on the LPJ tour, and not even just about getting uh, more women in the teaching side, but just women in the golf industry or around the golf industry or even just out mm-hmm. in the golf course. They've really done some great efforts. I know a lot of guys have too, but we've got to give uh, you know props where they're due. Uh, all right, I want to move forward because yes. I don't want to get on my soapbox. Um, obviously, I'm very passionate about uh, women's golf. But uh, my last question, and, and uh, James, take a deep breath, and then, Bill, I'm going to go to you next. Um, James, some players have reached maybe, and we'll just throw a number out there, maybe a 10 handicap. They were once a 25. They're now doing to a 10, and they've kind of plateaued. How do we get them to the next level? They want to get better but they've kind of plateaued. What do they need to do? Ooh. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, <laughs> hmm. Best to last. The first thing is, uh, yeah, deep breath. I'm ready. Uh, distance. It's hard to say whether or not distance would be a big deal for them. You know, getting from a 10 down lower, you know, is all short game. Uh, so, if somebody was at that handicap and came to me and said, you know, what do I need to do? My first thing that I would say is I have to take them on the golf course because I have to see them in action and how they play to, to be a, you know, to shoot five over par on the first nine. And so once I would see that, uh, I would assess whether or not their length is really 
you know, if they're hitting it as far as they should be and whether or not trying to challenge that or, or help them hit it further is worth it. And then lastly, uh, short game all the way, you know, how many putts they have. Because uh, for me, I specialize in putting, so I'm going to look at that and then how they are with their wedge, you know, from 120 yards in. Are they hitting the green or missing the green and why? So definitely short game. I'm going to look at their yardage a little bit, whether or not their equipment is the right equipment. Uh, it's amazing how many people, you know, even have the wrong driver, even though they think it's the right one. So that kind of assessment on the course and, uh, and then move forward. Yeah, uh, I agree uh, totally with you as well, James. Um, Bill, you know, it goes back to an earlier point we talked about when we were talking about the equipment, James just touched on that. You know, sometimes it might be a matter of the equipment. Maybe some of the clubs they've got, there's a lot of overlap. Um, maybe there's some yardages that they're not getting to uh, or they're missing out on because they're not properly fitted. So there might be some uh, discussion there as well, but what are your thoughts? Uh, we got a 10 handicap. Uh, he, he's hitting that plateau and he can't seem to, to, you know, will it down if his life depended on it. What do, what do we do? What's next? Yeah, I, I agree with James wholeheartedly. We get them on the golf course um, because that's the best place to analyze. We can tell where they're losing shots. Um, you know, I use a perfect example. I have a player that really struggles from 85 to 105 yards. Yeah, they'll hit the ball to 100 yards on a par five laying up or in a short par four. So my thought would be I stand up on a 300-yard par four and – you know, they're, they're going to hit, they're going to lay up with a 200 yard club. I said, well, why would you do that? Well, that's what everybody does. I said, well, you struggle there. You're good at 50 and you're good at 120. So either bomb the driver as close as you can or leave something way back. This is where that, right. and it may not be a full shot all the time. It's that half shot. We get those half shots yes. to begin to add up. And that's where you start to take it away. Also, I want that player to own it inside of 10 feet. We got to get a better make percentage inside of 10 feet with those putts. Where, where does that come from? Proximity to hole. That's the biggest key. We find that player getting the proximity better. We analyze that on the game. And one that I'll give where I won't watch is I know uh, have a player say, okay, you go out and play in the morning, you go out and play at night. Here's what I'd like you to do, or if it's slow. I'm going to script it out. You, you call me up and tell me. I know the golf course. I'm going to script out nine holes for you. I want you to drop an extra ball when you're playing. One at 25 yards, one at 35, one at 40, one from the rough, one from a, uh, a long fairway bunker. That's 35, 40 yards short. I want to see what you're scoring there because that's going to give me a real good indication of how your proximity is either working for you or working against you. And that gives me a big, 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 big way to, to formulate a good game plan for this player. And I think that's one of the things that we forget about so many times is the playing lesson. We've got all the maestros that are sitting here with all the technology. And, again, I'm not besmirching them. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But right. the game is not played on the range. It's played on the golf course. We have to be able to get out there, get our hands on, and see what's going on out there. Their routine may be all over the ball yard. You know, I tell players they want to play more consistent. There's two things as a human being we can do consistently. Stand up to the ball correctly consistently and think consistently. Now, those two are like – chasing the tail there you start setting up poorly you start thinking poorly bob 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 all the way down the line so you know my thought is you know as james said you got to see him on the golf course in action because you can learn a lot of things out there and it, it may be something very minor that they're doing very inconsistently and now you can get them 
you know, you can get that, that 10 down to a five pretty fast. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know what? Yeah, that's a great point. Great point, Bill. You know, one of the things too, that a lot of people don't realize is coming from a 25 down to a 10 is certainly much easier than coming from a 10 down to a scratch player. You know, if you look at mm-hmm. most of the tour players, the, if you ask them, they will tell you that getting those, you know, one or two extra um, strokes off their game is much harder than it was for them when they first started out because obviously they got much bigger gains. So when the player gets down to a 10 handicap from, let's say, a 25 where they started, um, and if you look at what, what they did, more, more than likely it was ball striking was maybe an, uh, an issue. Um, obviously some distance was involved. Um, potting, you know, there's all kinds of areas of the game. But once they get down to a 10 handicap, you can pretty much bet for the most part they're hitting a pretty decent ball most of the time. They're probably, probably putting pretty good too, um, but there's probably some areas of their game that we need to tighten up. Uh, and also maybe their course strategy, maybe what, they, what they're doing out in the golf course, they're making some mental mistakes that might be costing them those couple of extra strokes. So, you know, you have to get them out in the golf course, as, as you both indicated, uh, both now and, and at the beginning of the show. Let's get them out in the golf course as quick as possible, and let's do an assessment to see, okay, how did they get from point A to point B, and how are they handling themselves around these two or three holes uh, in this playing lesson? Let's see where some of the... the, the uh, you know, chink in the armor where the weak links are, and let's address those issues specifically. Um, great conversation, guys, tonight. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but we're we're down to the last couple of minutes. But you guys come up wow. with some great answers tonight, and and yeah, it always, it's it's the hour blows through quick, doesn't it? Um, it sure does. I, I want to give you guys. Yeah, I want to give you guys a, a couple of bullets, and you'll you'll be able to put your feet up and, and relax. You guys have had some, a busy day today, and, and uh, we got a couple more minutes left. I know that, but uh, uh, I want to give each of you an opportunity, of course, to, to let the folks know here in just a minute uh, how they can reach out to you. But um, we do have a couple of minutes, actually. So let me just ask each of you, and, and James, I'll let you go first. Um, what are some things, very quickly, that you would like to see um, different in the golf industry that maybe is not happening. Now, what are some uh, uh, suggestions, ideas that you'd like to share with maybe some of your fellow pros and some of the listeners out there? Um, what are some things that you'd like to see different or, or added to what's currently going on? You know, the one thing that I see the most that is, I guess, in a way hard for me to believe is sometimes during the day when you would, you would want your golf course to be busier, it's not. So I would say that there's, you know, maybe missed opportunities and where maybe the the courses and, you know, not to say that the pros aren't doing the best they're doing, uh, but it just seems like times of day where all of a sudden, you know, the tee box is empty. And whether that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon or it's 11 a.m. or whatever it is, uh, you know, especially during the week, and obviously folks work, and I think there's – you know, where we could be reaching out better to our communities and getting our, yes. you know, you know our, our courses, you know, we have in our area within, you know, even within five miles, there's thousands of homes, right? And mm-hmm. thousands of homes, and you, and you have to say to yourself, wow, it's like whenever I first started teaching full-time and, and at the facility, uh, you know, nobody was really teaching and in my mind, I said, wow, I said, if, if I start teaching full-time and, and if I even just do a reasonable job, 
uh, I can't imagine that out, out of 5,000 homes within a couple of miles that I couldn't have a 25-hour-a-week schedule at least. And, you know, and you do the right things and, and you reach out to that community and you get folks involved who are not normally involved in, in joining your club. So I would say that, you know, the, the claim is there's lots of uh, uh, golfers that are leaving golf, and but there's also lots of golfers that are starting golf. And, you know, we have ages, right. you know, folks are retiring, some can't play anymore. But so I guess that's my main deal. I would, I would love to see more reaching out to the community, to everyone in the community, and finding some way to yep. get them over to your course. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, very quickly, James, the folks that want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, James Kyle Golf Academy. My academy is out of East Lake Woodlands Country Club, which is in Oldsmar, Florida. Uh, my website is jameskylegolfacademy.com, and you can find me uh, via email or phone on my website. I'm obviously available uh, person in person and also do a fair amount of online coaching, which is a lot of fun. A uh, couple of great mm-hmm. clients over in the United Kingdom right now. But other than that, uh, that's where you can find me. And, Ted, thank you so much. It's been a great time, and also with Bill. Perfect. Thanks, um, James. Bill, just some uh, quick thought. Thank you, James. Bill, quick thought on uh, what you'd like to see, maybe something uh, added or different uh, that you'd like to see to, to the industry to do. Well, the first thing is, and, and James knows this very well, I would I would prefer to see a lot of the coaches that – have to continually besmirch others just to be quiet for a second they're creating a lot more confusion in the coaching industry and that is absolutely detrimental to our game they won't tell you why why what they do is right but they'll tell you what you do is wrong and i think that's that's an absolute Uh disservice it's up to me to show the player why it works and why why it does and for some you know some of the coaches to get out there and start saying well that doesn't work that doesn't work well why Give me a, you know, tell me why, you know, showing pictures to people of, of Hogan when he hit it poorly or Johnny Miller when he hit it poorly, it's, you know, that's, that's the gospel. And I think that's something that's created such an amount of confusion with amateurs and they don't even realize what they're doing half the time. You know, we'll get people that'll get on and they'll bloviate terribly. And I think that's one of the things I don't, we don't have to be consistent and we would never will be consistent. But one of the things we can't do is create chaos for our own self-worth because you don't have a real good method of doing it. And I hate to say that, but you know, that's one of the things I find with players because they'll come to a player will come to me. Well, this is the way you're supposed to do it because so-and-so said it. I said, well, they may feel that way, but I'll show you why what I'm telling you will work and it will work consistently for you. And you know, it's, it's just amazing. I think that's one of the things I'd like to see is a little more respect. Um, from some of the from some of the other coaches that really you know they don't have a a hook to hang their hat on and they're out there bad mouthing everybody and I think that's a yeah uh, you know that's a real big problem and especially as people are are trying to take lessons they don't want to get into these these controversies you know I always have the saying you're not going to get worse before you get better and how many coaches will say oh you got to get way worse before you get better I mean I'd never go to a right. doctor and I've said this to you before Ted if I had a lump on my shoulder. And the doctor goes, oh, you're going to get way worse before we get that thing cut off. And I'm like, guess what? I'm going to the next guy down the street because I'm not going to listen to this. So, you know, <laughs> right. I think that's one of the things I'd you're like right. to see my, 
my industry do a little better job of is, you know, put a sock in it. And if there is something that you're doing that's better, please let us know what you do that's better. You know, show me what it is. Don't just tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And I think that's something that, you know, and James is pretty sensitive to this. We've had a little discussions on this before. I think that's one of the things that we miss terribly is people are trying to, you know, self-promote themselves and really, you know, they're, they're, they're standing on a, uh, on a ladder with one rung that's about ready to fall off. And I think that's one of the things that has to happen is, you know, you have to be a little more respectful and mindful of other people. And in our industry right now, that's not the case, whether it's, you know, courses, clubs, everybody, we have to be a little bit more mindful of the player. And we're not mindful of the player. We're getting our own egos and attitudes right. in the way. You're exactly right. Let me make very two very quick points, and then i got to let both of you go. Uh, Bill, sorry, very quickly, let the folks know if they want to reach out to you, how they can go about do that. Yeah, for the winter months through mid-April, I'm going to be um, with the Golf Channel Academy Coral Springs, and we're located at TPC uh, Eagle Trace and also at Heron Bay Golf Club. Uh, which is just uh, northwest of uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport. It's probably about 35 minutes from either one of them from the Fort Lauderdale Airport. They can reach me. They can go to my direct website, BillAbramsGolf.com, and find my contact information there. But I will be with the with the Golf Channel Academy for the winners. Once uh, middle of April to May, I'll be back at Balmoral Woods Country Club in Creed, Illinois. And uh, same thing. You can just go to my website and uh, find me there. Well, guys, uh, as always, thank you very much for, for coming on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. You guys did a great job. Two very quick points. First point, um, just to what you were talking about, Bill, and then, then I'm going to let you both go um, and, and make way for my special guest tonight. But um, I couldn't agree wholeheartedly. I think that uh, as professionals, I think we have to be mindful that there are always a set of eyes watching us, not only on the golf course, but off the golf course. And if we're not being respectful to one another, uh, it's only going to end up being to our own detriment in the industry. So we have to be careful of that. And James, to your point about how we can reach out to the community, one thing that was always very successful when I was in school, I can remember uh, classroom trips, you know, whether it be to Woodshop or uh, home economics for the girls or whatever the case may be. I think a great way for golf industry to, to really uh, grow the game is to reach out to their local schools and invite the, the uh, kids uh, to take class trips to the local golf course. Um, very, very inexpensive to do so. They don't have to get on the golf course and necessarily play. We can maybe set up some workstations. I know that's already happening, but that would be a way to, to certainly spark some interest in some young kids and uh, future, uh, uh, hopefully future golfers of the game. But uh, food for thought uh, for the golf industry out there. Uh, I know it's already being done in some areas, but it needs to happen more of a national scale. Uh, James and Bill, thank you very much, as always, for being on Coach's Corner tonight. And uh, I look forward thank to you. you guys coming back again next time. All right. Have a good one, hey, guys. Yes, sir. Ed, thank you. Good night. Absolute thank pleasure. You. Thanks again for having us. Take care. Have a good evening, everybody. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest on the Coach's Corner panel, James Kyle and Bill Abrams, both great uh, golf professionals. And uh, always uh, love having them on the panel. I'm, I'm very excited tonight uh, for a couple of reasons. Always uh, I love doing the shows, but also – uh, I have an opportunity to, to really, uh, my next guest is is just got a, a wealth, wealth of knowledge about the game, has been around the game for many, many years. Uh, he's affectionately known as the Little Pro, and I'm, of course, talking about Eddie Marins. Uh, he's a legendary golf instructor. He's a PGA Hall of Fame uh, member and uh, also a professional club professional at the Bel Air Country Club. Uh, and he just 
it just has so much to his uh, accolades, if you will. In fact, there's too many. I can't read them all out. But let me just tell you a little bit uh, about him, and then uh, I'll bring my very special guest on tonight. Uh, he wrote a very, uh, very interesting book uh, a number of years back called Swing the Handle, Not the Clubhead. Uh, it, it's obviously had a tremendous amount of success. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that tonight uh, and some other things. Uh, he was born in uh, August 4th, 1932, and his hometown is Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, and he's been inducted into multiple uh, Hall of Fames. Uh, he's also been the uh, men's golf coach at the UCLA uh, in 1975 to 89. Uh, also started a, a great organization foundation called Friends of Golf. We'll talk to him about that as well. And has had 16 career hole-in-ones. Uh, and I've got one particular that we're going to ask him about here tonight. Uh, but please welcome my very special guest this evening, Eddie Marins. Good evening, Eddie, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Well, thank you, Ted. It's great to be with you and, and with your audience. Well, thank you very much uh, for doing this. I know it's not always easy uh, after a busy day, and, and uh, I know you're out in California, so we're a couple of hours different, but uh, this is uh, still some daylight, I think, for you out there. It's a little dark out here in Florida, but uh, I'm glad you could join me this evening. Um, yeah, we're still licking our wounds from the Dodger World Series. <laughs> So more more power yeah. to Houston. They played great. Yeah, they did. You know what? Uh, I was telling somebody very quickly, and then we'll move on, but I was telling somebody the other night that it was certainly one of the most exciting uh, World Series that we've seen. I mean, they're all exciting, but uh, uh, probably in the last several years. And uh, certainly congratulations to the Houston uh, for, for coming through and, and clinching it. But, yes, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, very unhappy people in, in your neck of the woods, uh, but they – they have nothing to complain about. They they played a great uh, a great series, and and I know that uh, they'll come back with with fury next year. But um, let me just ask you something that I, I like to ask a lot of my guests that are obviously in the golf industry. You've you as I mentioned, you've been around for many many years uh, in the profession. Um, but I want to ask an obvious question: What brought you to the game? Not so much. Let's not talk about uh, instruction right at this point, but let's talk about. Um, what first drew you to the game of golf, and roughly how old were you when you first picked up the game? I was 11 years old when I began to play in, in Mississippi in the summertime especially. You don't have many choices. You you play golf, you play tennis, you swim, and then in the winter you might play football, you might even play baseball, and uh, that's about it. But there is no such thing as winter sports in, in, the, in the South. No. So, no. <laughs> but my young friends in Meridian introduced me to the game of golf when I was 11. Therefore, I'd, I'd played football and I'd played baseball, and I was very much like most All-American boys in the sports. But when I began to play golf, I, I just put everything else aside. I, I dare say from the time I began till I finished high school, I didn't miss five days a week going to the golf course. I'd go after school, or when school was out, I'd be on the golf course most of the day. And it, it took, I really became hooked on the game. And I'd like to see youngsters today find their way to golf, and I think that's truly happening before our eyes. When you when you think yes. of the problems that are presented in football with the head injuries and you yep. think of the allegiance problems and whatnot, the game of golf, gives you everything you could possibly want as a youngster growing up, gaining the the culture 
vibes and, and also understanding what competition is all about. And I think the Augusta National Golf Club taught us all a lesson when they started the drive, pitch, and putt contest three years ago. They gave the PGA, yes. the USGA, the RNA the way to go to grow the game. They've been trying to figure out how to do that. Well, they learned how to do that. Now it's, it's a matter of implementing it. And no better organization is qualified to do that than the PGA of America with its 28,000 members. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, we're seeing so many great strides um, happening now within the organization and, and really throughout the nation to really get a lot of the youngsters. I couldn't agree wholeheartedly uh, with you, Eddie, and you're exactly right. I think that we need to get at the youngsters uh, as early as possible. And I think that, you know, once they get out in the golf course and, and sort of get a feel for the game, they don't have to master the game, obviously, at, at, at you know, seven or eight years old. But once they kind of get a taste of, of what it's like to be in a golf course and what it's like to, to get out there on, on the putting green or, 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 you know, what have you, I think that just as many of us says, we, we get bitten by that bug. And obviously somewhere in, in your early part of your career, you were bitten by that bug, as a lot of people refer to. Um, what's specific well, about the game? We're, yeah. What, you know, I've always equated golf, Eddie, to, to really life. There's so many similarities that parallel life uh, out on the golf course. You know, we get faced with obstacles. We get faced with decision-making that we also have in our life. Were there any life lessons that you can recall that you learned while you were out in the golf course that you've applied to your everyday life? Well, my case was unusual in this sense. And I began playing with grown men, mature men, by the time I was 14 years old. I started when I was 11, so I, it took me a couple of years to catch on to the game. But by that time, I was actually shooting in the, in the 70s. And the men in the little mm -hmm. club in, in Meridian, Mississippi, the Northwood Country Club, used to invite me to play with them. And it was a great maturing process. Instead of playing with young boys and girls, I was playing with grown men. And I was competing with them. And we'd be playing for quarters or half dollars or dollars and you know, have a little something at stake in competition. And they would take me to tournaments as well, to invitational tournaments within a 200-mile radius of, of Meridian. And so I'm, I matured quite early through competition and through playing with, with grown men. I, I actually, I guess, missed part of my youth growing up because I didn't spend that much time with, with youngsters other than competing against them in, in the competition right. that I began to play later. Yeah, and you, and as I said at the beginning, and I was telling the, the two gentlemen that were on before you, of course, members of the PGA and uh, teach professional, and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, your son Mason, of course, sent me uh, some information, uh, obviously your bio, and, and I was saying to both of the gentlemen off air um, that there was so many uh, accolades that you've earned over the years and, and just credits to, to your career uh, that we would literally use up the whole hour and then some just reading them all out. But I want to share just a few um, that were very interesting. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, and I may have the number wrong, but I believe there were 10 Hall of Fame uh, that you were inducted into. Obviously, Actually, had a, last, a, 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 last sorry, Monday I, I was inducted into 
the California Golf Summit Hall of Fame, the first ever California Summit PGA Hall of Fame. And uh, that was the, the 12th one that I'd been inducted into. And I'm very proud of each and every one of those because they're, they're so meaningful to me, you know. Yeah, and and uh, well, I knew it was getting up in double digits. I wasn't sure if it was ten or eleven or twelve. I had I had actually stopped counting because I had to come on the show at number ten. So I knew that it was, an, and I did remember that there was another one. But you know, obviously, it's obviously a very humbling uh, as well to to just know that you've you've done so much for the game. And I didn't. I mean, I, obviously, I, I've known of you for for many many years, and even I didn't realize just how much you've done for the game. And and one of the other things that you did was very interesting as well is you were a men's golf coach for UCLA from 1975 to 89. I, That's I, right. I want to 14 years. Ask, yeah, I want to. Yeah, I want to ask you specifically. Obviously, you know, you helped the youngsters, uh, uh, and I say youngsters because uh, they're they're younger than I am. Um, help them with their game and, and help them reach their maximum potential in in order to do that. But obviously it's a little bit different working with collegiate players than it is um, with individual uh, golfers out there because now you're, you're focusing on a team effort. Even though golf is traditionally an individual sport, there has to be a sort of a team mindset. What were some of the things that you tried to instill with the players that you work with at UCLA in order to get them to work together uh, as a team? Well, the first, let me say, I'd, I'd played college golf myself. I went to LSU on an athletic scholarship in 1950 to 55. And uh, they weren't very plentiful in those days, the athletic scholarships, the full rides. But I'd won the right. Mississippi State Amateur, and I'd won the J.C. National Junior. And on the strength of that, I was awarded a scholarship. So I did play college golf, and I, I had a pretty good record in, in college. I managed to win the Southeast Conference Championship twice. I won the Southern and Collegiate Championship. I went to the finals of the NCAA Championship when I was a sophomore against Jimmy Vickers from Oklahoma. He beat me one down on the finals, and I've hated him ever since. <laughs> but, yeah, I've I spent a lot of my young years competing in in college golf and amateur golf, and uh, all of that prepared me when I had the opportunity to assume the coaching at UCLA. I was asked by the chancellor of the university, Charles Young, to coach his team because he had, the UCLA athletic program was replete with all kinds of winning teams, and they were big and the Olympic sports, but the golf program was probably the the weak uh, link on the on the totem pole, and he didn't understand that. He didn't know why that should be, and the reason being, the coaches before me didn't have the opportunities that I had to raise the money and to do the things that are necessary in order to build a, a winning program. So I jumped at the opportunity for two main reasons. One, there was an opportunity to take a program that had not been so good and build it into a great program, and we we won awards as having the finest college golf program in, in America toward the end after my 14 years. And the other reason for doing it, it was a way for me to express my 
ability as a teacher through the medium of competition represented by those young college players. And, and I, I, I think that learning process when I was coaching UCLA made me a much, much better teacher of the game of golf because we were into the art and the science of playing the game as opposed to just hitting a bucket of balls or seeing how far you could hit it or seeing if you could get it in the hole. We were into playing the game. And I, I think most teaching in, in today's world doesn't really teach you to play the game as well as it might. But I think that's the next learning vista with the game of golf. You're going to see much more accent on playing the game as opposed to just swinging and hitting shots. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100% uh, with that, Eddie. And and let me just, before I bring in the sort of the next question, um, we're going to talk about, of course, uh, your book, uh, Swing the Handle. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I want to ask you just on, on sort of the back of what you just said. Do you think that over the last, and it might be the de- maybe decade, that the industry has sort of drifted down this technology road a little bit too far? Not that technology is bad and gotten away from some of the basics of golf instruction and teaching. Do you think that, that that's really what's happened here? And, and as you said, maybe it's going to start coming full circle and getting back to more of the teaching side of things. What are your thoughts? I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think it has become a little too technical. And, and and you you can't really learn from a book. You can you can learn some ideas, but learning right. learning golf, you know, you you can learn a lot of ways. You can you can learn by pictures, whether they be still pictures or moving pictures. You can you can learn from example from others. You can learn by the verbal word. I think the most lasting way for you to learn are word pictures that lodge in your mind. If somebody can sew a picture in your mind that explains the golf swing and explains the shot and the swing you're trying to make, it's going to be there forever. It's in your brain forever, and you can call on that whenever you want. All the other methods of teaching are here for the moment and and gone the next, you know, they, they poof, go up yes. and smoke. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and I know, and, and again, not to, to criticize anybody in the industry, but I know from when I've gone down to, as an example in Orlando every year, of course they have the PGA merchandising show and there's always, you know, the, the, the latest and greatest next thing, uh, even in the equipment side. And I know you've, you've seen uh, all kinds of, of uh, beasts, if you will, of, of equipment out there from, or its early days to what's out there now. And the technology, uh, you know, Jack Nicholas, of course, has been um, critical of, of some of the technology and some of the equipment that it's just making the ball go too far and really making a lot of courses. Even for a while, he talked about Augusta National for a time was even becoming almost obsolete to some of the, the current players. What are your thoughts on the, uh, not just so much t- technology, but with the equipment as well? Do you agree with what he said? Um, that they oh, need to, to I believe everything that Jack Nicholas has. To, I think I believe everything Jack Nicholas has to say. I, I think he is the epitome of of champion, and he's he's accomplished more than anybody who ever lived in the in the game of golf. And I I agree. You know, he for years years ago he produced the Cayman Ball when he was in the business of producing product. 
and it was designed for short courses where you could play with a, a monitored ball and you, you got the sensation you were playing a full golf course. But that's carried over in, in his thinking to, to today's market where he thinks that the ball, if anything, goes too far, whether the ball is too hot or whether the clubs make the ball go too far or whether, whatever the case may be, he thinks it, it needs to be rolled back somewhat. And I think most people would agree with that because otherwise all your golf courses are outmoded and your record book is for nil. Um, the records don't really mean anything the way they hit the ball today, the, the length at which they hit it. Yeah, I, I, I agree as well. I'd, I'd like to see some changes there as well. Um, Eddie, I, I want to obviously give you an opportunity. I, I know we we can't get into everything specific because we'd be here for a long, long time. But um, you know, you've you've created a an incredible um, book called "Swing the Handle, Not the Clubhead." Explain for the golfers as best you can. I know we don't have the the ability for visual here uh, on the program, but as best you can to help people understand what you actually mean by that phrase, swing the handle. Okay. Well, when I I turned pro, I was 27 in in 1957. And I was fortunate enough to go to work at Marion. I was playing pro at the Marion Golf Club under Fred Austin. Fred Austin had been an Ernest Jones disciple. Ernest Jones probably gave more golf lessons one-on-one than anybody who ever lived. And his book, believe it or not, the title of his book was Swing the Club Head. And in my studies at Marion for the benefit of my own golf game, because I turned pro to play golf, not to teach golf, but in my studies, learning the game and then having to teach, it occurred to me on that practice tee at Marion that you really do not swing the club head and you do not right. accent the hands as most teaching had you do in those days. Hands and club head were synonymous and they were featured in almost every teaching realm. And in truth, you hold the club with your hands. Yes, you do. But what do you hold? You hold a handle of the club in your hands. And what do you do with it? You don't eat with it. You don't paint with it. You don't write with it. All you can do is swing it. So you've got something tangible to swing, the handle of the club. Then the next question would be, all right, how do you do that? You do it with your forearms. Why? Because there's no way you can swing it any other way. You cannot take the club from the starting position swing it to the end of the back swing, and then swing through the ball to the end of the forward swing anyway but with the forearms. I mean, you can try doing whatever you may with the body, but that golf club is not going to budge until your forearms move it. So it, it just simplifies the thinking, and I, I dare say the thought alone as well as the book have had great influence on the progression that you see because one of the things that I've noticed with the tour players 40 years later, they used to swing to the ball, and there was a lot of hand action at the ball. Today, they don't stop at the ball. They swing through the ball, and that's a huge, huge, right. huge improvement. And and it leads to what you see today. They, they hit the ball farther. They're using the entire strength of their body. 
as well as the better equipment that they're using. So that that combination is is causing those golf balls to go out of sight. Yeah, and, and you know what's interesting about what you talk about, Eddie, is I, I watched one of the the videos, of course, that uh, one of many that you've done uh, on swing the handle, and it was very interesting. And I want you maybe just to expand a little bit further on this point, but you you equate it to um, in tennis, you sort of draw a comparison between tennis uh, and a player there. Again, explain for the listeners out there tonight um, how and, and how a tennis player uh, uses that same theory when swinging the, the tennis racket. Okay. I, I, I think the analogy is beautiful because uh, what does the tennis player do? If he has the racket in one hand, he uses the one forearm to swing the handle part of the racket. In today's vogue, the tennis stroke often is a two-arm stroke, call it a double backhand, whatever you want to term it. But they're using the strength of both forearms to stroke the shaft of the racket from one side of the body to the other. And it's very, very effective and very strong because you have the total strength of the body, the right side and the left side at work. Well, a golf swing is exactly that. And if you equate the two instruments... They, they're the same. You've got three component parts. You've got a handle, a shaft, and a head. A golf club has a handle, a shaft, and a head, as does a tennis racket. It's pretty obvious the tennis player holds the racket in his hands, and he uses his forearm to stroke the shaft from one side of the body to the other through the ball as he does so. A golfer should do exactly the same thing. So, as I said earlier, it's a great word picture, the thought of the, the tennis stroke as applied to golf. And if you want to really prove that to yourself, put both the golf club and the tennis racket in your hands at the same time and make what you think is a two-arm tennis stroke, a double backhand, if you will, and you're making a perfect golf swing. And all of a sudden, that, I, I picture, love that picture lodges in the mind, and it's it's there to be called upon whenever you want it. Yeah, and, and you know, when I watched the video, um, uh, I think it was a YouTube video uh, where you, you were explaining that, and, you know, I, I would, you know, I momentarily kind of closed my eyes, and I was visualizing what you were talking about, and of course, it just made so much sense. And I think what, what, what's kind of interesting, and, I, and this sort of leads me into the next question, Eddie. You know, you've had the obviously the opportunity throughout your career to see some of the greatest players um, thus far that have ever lived. Everybody, um, you know, from Ben Hogan to Nicholas to Palmer, and even uh, some more recent players. You know, of course, Tiger Woods. Um, That's right. But what is it that they're doing right that the average amateur isn't doing right. What are some of the, the differences? Obviously, they're, they're scoring better, but what is it that the pros know that the amateurs don't, do you think? Well, I think you know, when you start comparing the era, you, you've got to go back 100 years. and You start with, with Jones and Varden and Ray and those guys and Hagen and Sarazen up through Hogan and Sneed and, and then Nelson and up to Nicholas and Palmer and Watson and Player and Trevino, now to Woods and Spieth and all the guys you see today. And it, it's been a, a transition 
but all of those players had their their certain run, their era, if you will. And how in the world do you compare players? The only real comparison that makes any sense is how many majors did they win? That's really the only accurate barometer that you can use to compare players of a different era. Jones won 13 majors, and, and Nicholas won his 18, and Woods won 14. But Palmer won whatever he won, nine, I think, and Blair won nine. Yes. Watson won eight. And, and, and then there are a lot of them who won one. That puts them in the major category. But when you're in the major right. category, the next question is, how many majors did you win? And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty <laughs> accurate barometer, really, when you start comparing the, the players. The, compare Nelson with Sarah's and compare whomever with whomever. Hagen is, is a little bit distorted in that he won the Western Open at least a half dozen times, maybe more. In those days, it was considered a major, and it isn't today, but but he he was a, he had a great record, as as did so many what, of the others and, and the foreign players as well. Right. Um, what, what's interesting, Eddie, uh, when you look back at a lot of the players, and this is always something that kind of baffled me. Maybe you can shed a little bit of light when you look at some of the earlier players uh, and you compare them to today's game, where where the picture perfect golf swing seems to be the norm that's what they aspire to but yet when you look at players as some of them you named even nicholas but Torino and uh many of the other older players uh, of that generation when you compare their golf swings to one another they were very uniquely different they might have had certain key elements that were the same but you know obviously if you compared Torino to some of the other players i mean he was was way out there by comparison but yet you look at today's player this pursuit of perfection has it really helped them, or do you think it's hurt them, in, in your opinion? Uh, Tiger Woods was a prime example of that. He was never satisfied. He kept searching for yeah. perfection and never quite found it. But he found, he found other things along the way that caused his demise. <laughs> right. But, uh, but I, right. I, found, I, I found my answer this way, Ted, and, and I, I think your audience might, might appreciate the, the analogy. I had a problem when I was at UCLA getting my players to believe in what I was presenting because I was convinced that swing the handle would allow them to win a national championship. And that's why I was there coaching and presenting what I did. But I I didn't give them credit because most of those youngsters who were scratch players or better when they came to college had been trained by other people. They weren't trained in swinging the handle. So I was a little selfish in getting them to do things my way when they'd been successful doing things somebody else's way. And I realized that if we're going to get around this roadblock, I better figure out a way to do that. And the answer came to me this way. I saw the opening of the Olympic Games back in 84 or whatever the year was, and I saw 200-plus countries parade by in the opening ceremony and I said to myself I didn't know there were that many countries in this world and they speak a different language or if not a different language at least a different dialect 
but they're yes. there to play a common game. And that was my answer. Yes. And that's exactly what swing language is all about. You can have a different swing language, but beyond the language, you've got to play the game. And that's where the next learning vista is bound to be when it comes to learning golf. You can you can stand on your head and swing if you if you care to, but that's your method of going about it. It's your language, so to speak. But beyond the language, there is a game to be played. Like in the Olympics, they may speak different languages, but they're competing in a common game. Yeah, well said, Eddie. Um, and and I couldn't agree more. You're exactly right. I think one of the things that I've seen in the last at least decade, if not longer, um, was certain elements of, of the golf instruction um, was sort of pigeonholing, every, what I call pigeonholing everybody into the same form. In other words, they weren't treated as individuals. If you follow this theory or you follow that theory, um, you know, you're going to be successful. And that may work for some, but we're, we're all uniquely different, as you just pointed out uh, with the Olympics. Um, and I think that this was something that has been detrimental to the industry as well as trying to put everybody in the same box because we are uniquely different. Everybody swings a little bit differently, as you just pointed out. And, and uh, again, there may be cer- certain core fundamentals that, um, that may need to be true, but essentially we are all different. And I think that once you understand that we all speak a different language, so to speak, then I think it, it becomes a little bit easier. I want to ask you, um, I, I mentioned in the, oh, sorry, go ahead. You want to, did you want to add something? No, I'm I'm just saying that can be differences, like differences in language and, and dialect. Now all of a sudden you can understand how there there can be a Lee Trevino swing or there can be a Jack right. Nicholas swing or there can be a Tiger Wood swing. <clears throat> all those guys are doing it their way, but they're competing in a game beyond the swing and they're very yes. successful at it. And, and they have the trophies to show for it in the championships. Right. Right, exactly. And, and I agree. I think that more golfers need to pay less attention on, you know, how they look out on the golf course and more about how they're actually applying um, their game to the golf course. And I think that they would have much more enjoyment. I think too many people uh, have bought into this idea that they have to, you know, um, stand in front of the mirror and just be perfect all the time. And, uh, you know, even the best of players, as you know, uh, Eddie, yourself, uh, made some bad shots. We may not see them on television all the time, but they've made some pretty ugly shots in their career. But yet they still, as you said, managed to bring home the trophy. So um, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I want to ask you about, uh, I mentioned in the opening credits, that uh, you've had 16 career hole-in-ones. And one particularly I, I want to talk because it, it really, yes, it, it, it's it stood uh, it stood out to me, and that was in 1964 at what was called then the Bing Crosby National Pro-Am, uh, of course held at Pebble Beach. You shot a hole-in-one on hole number seven, uh, 107 yards into... Probably the most photographed uh, hole in the world. 107 <laughs> right. yards downhill, and would you believe I hit a three iron? And that right. tells you the story of how that, how that hole can play when the, when the storm is coming in off that ocean. I remember Palmer. Palmer went through that hole a couple of holes before me, 
and he used a forearm and he got his ball up in the air and it peeled off like a seagull into the ocean. <laughs> Sneed Sneed when the storm was bad like that Sam Sneed used to putt the ball down the hill. He'd he'd run it down the hill into the bunker and then get it up and down out of the bunker to make three. But you could you could just ruin your week right there on that little hole, that little hundred and seven yard downhill hole. And each year in the, yeah, the A T and T now it used to be the Crosby. They they show that hole over and over and over again. And occasionally they'll mention the story about this obscure pro who had to hit a three iron once upon a time to and knock the ball in the hole in the Crosby. Well that obscure golf pro was me. <laughs> that was my yeah. my main claim to, to success in the Bing Crosby tournament. Thank thank God to, for Bing inviting me some fourteen times to play in it. He was a member here at Bel Air, by the way. Right, I know that. Um and of course you've you've uh, helped Bing along the way in, in your career as you have with so many other I mean the list just goes on and on of not only golf professionals that, that have played out on the uh the PGA and L P J tour, um, but just that the list of celebrities is, is is longer than both of my arms. Uh you know, just so many you know, Bing Crosby, you know, Dean Martin, uh Jack Nicholson and just the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so obviously that that's a credit to to your uh, to your teaching, but I want to ask you and about common, something else. And that common, was... they're chasing that little white ball. That's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting times for sure. I, I want to ask you something, Eddie, about uh, an organization that you created, actually a foundation that you created uh, uh, called Friends of Golf. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and. What was sort of the idea behind it for those that maybe aren't familiar with it? Well, that that began from my coaching experience at UCLA, which began in 1975. And uh, you don't win stakes races with claiming horses, as somebody once said. You got to have the right horses in order to win championships. And I was in the throes of recruiting the right players. I recruited Mark O'Meara, Johnny Cook, Bobby Clampett on and on. I, I went after the players that I knew I had to have in order to win. But these boys were going to college and they wanted to play where there'd been a winning team. And UCLA had meager success in the in the past. So no matter what I had to say, they were going to choose to go where they thought they could win. So that was a bit frustrating. And, and it led me to start recruiting whenever and wherever. So I did a people-to-people trip to England back in 76, and I kept reading about the teenage sensations, Lyle and Faldo, Sandy Lyle, Nick Faldo. I said, I'll pull a coup. I'll just go recruit these guys. And sure enough, I met with them, met with their dads. They both wanted to come to UCLA, brought their great transcripts back to UCLA, and the university laughed at me and said, these boys are about to get in UCLA. So that was one of the roadblocks that you have to face as a as a coach, you know. And finally, right. we we succeeded when we recruited a skinny little 140-pound player named Corey Taven when he was 17 <laughs> years old. And and Corey was successful. He won the Junior World. He won the L.A. Men's City. He was a semifinalist in the USGA National Junior. 
and he came to college and he didn't play so hot the first year. He made some improvements in his golf swing, but began to play well toward the end of that first year. But the second year, he won more tournaments than any player in college. He won six golf tournaments and was a first-team All-American. And he went on later in his final year to be the college player of the year, making the Walker Cup team. And then when he turned pro, he he won the U.S. Open, and he's been Ryder Cup player and captain. And his success led other people to want to come to UCLA. And that's that's exactly what you have to do. You, you've got to have stakes winners in order to win stakes races. You've got to have blue ribbon winners. And he proved to be that, and we, we attracted other players. And finally, in 1988, my 13th year, we, we did win that NCAA championship. But I thought we could win after five years, but it took us a little bit longer to do that. <laughs> But there are some 400 teams or so setting out at the beginning of each year trying to win that thing. Right. So it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, you know, when you fast forward to today's game, um, you know, obviously I know you have a chance to, to I'm sure, watch a lot of golf uh, when you can. But in today's players, both male and female, let's start with the, with the guys first. Who really impresses you and why? The, the male players, I'm, I'm impressed by all of them. Uh, Spieth, uh, I think, has the, the character that uh, most golfers would like to possess. Plus, he can putt, and you can't, you can't win in the big leagues unless you can putt, and he can really putt. And uh, yep. I'd put him in, in, in the league with Ben Crenshaw with a putter in his hands. And or Dave Stockton, another great putter who achieved greatness with it with a putting club but uh women the ucla has had two girls in their women's program who became the the top amateur player in the world and and Mm -hmm. that's within the last five years and uh they they also had a boy philip cantley who became the top amateur player in the world, well, just think of that. <laughs> there are a lot of there are a lot of amateur golfers out there in this world, and to be named number yep. one in the world is really quite an accomplishment. But I know that UCLA had three examples of that in their program, and we can all wow. take pride in that. And we didn't quite answer the friends of golf uh, query that you brought up. We formed that in 1980 as a fundraising for the UCLA program. When you're, when you're coaching, right. you don't just go out and play tournaments. You have to raise the money. You have to recruit the players. You have to get the courses. You have to do all of that. So to, to make the program work, we started our Friends of Golf program in 1980, and it grew monumentally in the after five years, we, we had an honoree in the form of Lee Trevino, and then we had Byron Nelson, and then we had Arnold Palmer, and then we had Nicholas, and we, we had Floyd, and we had we had them all, every golf player of any note. Even the year Nicholas was the honoree in our Friends of Golf outing, 
Tiger Woods was here representing junior golf and high school golf. And that was the meeting place between those two guys. And we've had so many wonderful things happen in that program. But we, we kept the program even after I gave up the, the coaching because it had become so popular and we were doing so much good with the fundraising effort. We we have raised over $8 million that we give away to colleges, wow. high schools, caddy programs with the, with the proceeds from that event. It's been an unbelievable uh, a model fundraising effort, but so many people are to be appreciated for, for making it work. But we have had we've had cooperation from every player. Dustin, yeah, Dustin I mean, Johnson I, was was here last year as the honoree. You know, he came here after the Masters when he had to sit out, but he made it here, and he. We have a, a water hazard some 340 yards from the first tee that no player had ever driven over. And I want you to know that he hit six balls over that creek in, 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 in the wow. exhibition that he conducted. And he, he was coming off the injury he had at Augusta. But, wow. Uh, that's yeah. Faldo and that's incredible. Furyk are to be the honorees this coming year. Nick Faldo and Jim Furyk could be the current Ryder Cup captain and a previous Ryder Cup captain. But these guys give of themselves because they 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 do that, knowing if if they don't do it, the game doesn't grow at the junior level, and it has to grow there. So that that's why they give of their their time and effort. And it couldn't be more. Yeah, and, and that. yeah, and really, like no other game, Eddie. I think golf it just epitomizes about giving back. Um, so many of these these great players. I mean, we see them every week in and week out on on tour, both men and women. And and but yet we don't see sometimes a lot of the things that go on behind the scenes, like what you just spoke about, where they're actually doing something to give back and to help grow the game. We don't always hear that part of it. We hear you know, the good shots they made in, in the tournament last week or uh, maybe the bad shots they made, but we don't always hear about some of the things they do away from the golf course that really give back and help the golf game, and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, Eddie, I, I've got one last question I want to ask you, and I'll, I'll even give you the opportunity to use the UCLA as, as an example. If you were sitting in front of uh, the UCLA golf team and, and one or more of the players – said to you, you know, Eddie, I, I really want to make it out on tour and, and I want to play professional golf once I'm done my collegiate career, what advice would you give to them? What, what pearls of wisdom, if you will, would you instill to them to help them make the right decisions? I'd, I'd let them know that they're, they're first at this university to get an education and second to play golf. And I want them to get that education. You know, I, I never tried to lure a boy into our program with the idea that he was going on to professional golf, even though we had countless examples of those who succeeded. I'd, I'd just as soon see them become an attorney or a, a doctor or whatever the case may be and right. enjoy their life beyond the game of golf. You know, the the professional world out there looks appealing and, and looks dramatic and and, and it's kind of like the old days in the movies where young girls and guys were attracted <laughs> to that industry. 
but and and the golf tour is attracting them the same way. But there's a lot of heartache and disappointment out there, and you spend sure a lot is. of times chasing your tail, if you will. And uh, yep. it'd be much better. You would enjoy the game that much more if you continued to play it at an upper level as an amateur player, but had a nice job that could provide your home and your family and everything that goes with becoming an older person. Yep, you're you're exactly right. And you know, I've I've had the the pleasure and opportunity uh, on this show to interview some great up and come. Uh, coming players, uh, both on the Symmetra and, and even the web.com uh, tours, and, you know, just to sort of pick their brains, if you will. And you're exactly right. There are so many great opportunities, and it is a struggle. Some of them have, have had some success very early on, and others continue to struggle as they as they continue to, uh, you know, to move through their career. So it is a very difficult – it's not all glamour, as, as uh, you know, some might think. It's It's a – a hard grind out there and it takes a lot of dedication. So you're exactly right in, in your analogy. It, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, if it's, if it's eaten away at you and you want to get out there, by all means, certainly give it an opportunity, but uh, it, it's not easy and it's not always glamorous. So I'm sure a lot of the players that, that don't do, um, you know, aren't at the top of the leaderboard could probably shed more light on that. I'm sure. Um, Eddie, Eddie, I want to I want to thank you. I hate to say this, but our our time is is winding up. Uh, it was probably one of the fastest hours I've ever had, and I wish I could extend it further. Um, but I would like to say this to you: there's there's so much that I know that you could share with the audience. So I would like to, uh, at some future date, uh, when it's convenient for you, I would like to have you come back on because there's literally a, a thousand things that we could talk about. And I I'd love to come back on. And I, I've enjoyed this hour much more than you might realize, and I've enjoyed speaking indirectly to your audience. And I, I hope some of it rubbed off. <laughs> I hope. Oh, I'm I'm sure it will. Well, I will I will definitely be in touch with you, and and we'll set something up for for some time in in uh, the new year, and uh, we may even uh, add a few others into the mix and. Maybe they may have some other questions for you as well. Some maybe some of your fellow professionals out there that might want to come on and I, and talk I'd to you as that. well. So we'll we'll do I'd, that. Um, I'd love that. And but, if I could get a copy of this show one way or the other, I'd love to have it too for posterity's well, sake. I I certainly will. I will I will email that out to you and I'll also send it to your son Mason just to make sure. But um um but lastly let me just ask you this real quick. Um your book, Swing the Handle, of course, uh, I believe is still available. Uh, can you maybe share with the audience where, if they want to get a copy of that book uh, in whatever version, where they can go to, to get their hot little hands on it? Uh, the Swing the Handle book is pretty much out of print, so you'd have to go to Amazon or one of those companies okay. that do collect the old books, but it is available. And I've done a, a more recent book called Playing Around with a Little Pro. And it's a combination of instruction but anecdotes from my career involving all the people I've had the opportunity to encounter and other experiences from my life. It, it, it makes it an interesting read. It's a great read. And the instruction portion is very readable. So I would recommend they, they get that. That's produced by Simon & Schuster. So any bookstore should be able to get that. Simon & Schuster and the title is Playing Around with a Little Pro by Eddie Well, Barrett. I would, I would, 
Yeah, I would love a, a copy of that, Eddie. That sounds like a great read. Um, and as I said, there are so many, um, many more parts of your story that we can share. And as I said, unfortunately, I only have an hour uh, at this time to give you, but uh, I, I promise you I will have you back anytime that you want to come back and, and continue the conversation. Um, but Eddie, I, I just want to take this opportunity, not only by, my, by me, but uh, by my, on behalf of my audience, I just want to say thank you very much sincerely from the bottom of my heart for, for giving me this time this evening uh, and, and afternoon in your case um, on the Golf Talk Live. I, I know my audience will enjoy it, and I will definitely send you a copy uh, um, when, it's, uh, when it's completed. Well, I've enjoyed every moment, and may, may all of them look forward to swinging the handle. Well Those said. My, my thank you, Eddie. words. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank well, you, the, Ted. The best parting words. Thanks to your audience. Thank you, Eddie. You're very welcome. Have a great uh, rest of your day, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest, uh, Eddie Marins, uh, the little pro, as he's affectionately known as uh, throughout his career. Um, just so many great uh, stories that I know that he could share, and I will have him back on again uh, early next year sometime. Uh, when it, Again, when it's convenient, we'll work out the schedule with him, and, and uh, I might even see if he'd be interested in coming on a, a Coach's Corner panel uh, as a special guest uh, panelist. I think he would have an enjoyment of that with some of my uh, fellow professionals. But uh, on behalf of... Uh, the guys on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, James Kyle and Bill Abrams, thank you uh, for, for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed uh, tonight's segment of Coach's Corner. Hopefully you took away uh, a few nuggets that will help you with your game, maybe making some decisions on, on how you want to approach your game and, and uh, maybe even taking a look and, and dusting out that old golf bag and, and getting rid of some of the old clubs that maybe aren't producing the way they should be and, and putting in some new ones. Uh, make sure you speak with your uh, local golf professional and they'll help you uh, uh, assess that uh, quite nicely and so you want to make sure you do that but um, also uh, you know I want to just uh, I can't never emphasize enough on this show I want to take this opportunity to really thank uh, all of you the listeners uh, worldwide for faithfully tuning into Golf Talk Live yeah, each and every week and as I always say I do have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches and teach professionals uh, like my special guest tonight Eddie Marins. Uh, and authors and entrepreneurs stop by, and it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Uh, also, a special thanks to my sponsors and supporters of the show, uh, Mr. Jonathan Laird, uh, the editor and owner of South Coast Golf Guide. Uh, if you go to southcoastgolfguide.com, you can check out all the great things that you'll find in the guide. Uh, or if you want your hot little hands uh, to get a copy of the official guide, um, you can reach out to, to Jonathan Laird on southcoastgolfguide.com and he'll be more than happy to uh, send you a copy or uh, let you know where you can pick up a copy as well. It's available in many of the local courses uh, throughout the southeastern part of the United States from literally from Texas right over here uh, to northwest Florida uh, and all points in between. So you can certainly find out uh, where you can get your hot little hands. A lot of great information in the guide so make sure you check out southcoastgolfguide.com. Also Meredith Kirk uh, 2014 Mrs. South Carolina, and also a great LPJ teach professional based out of Myrtle Beach. Uh, you can go to her website, MeredithKirk.com is her website. Uh, thank you, Meredith, for all of your continued support. Uh, Nikki, of course, a great uh, golf professional. Nikki and his lovely wife, Tiffany Litherland. Uh, thank you for all of your 
uh, support and helping to spread the word uh, throughout the years. Uh, I really appreciate it very much and uh, much continued success on your end, Nikki, as well, and uh, your lovely wife, Tiffany. Uh, Mr. Bernie Pinder, of course, the owner and founder of Ontic Golf, a great line of customized putters. Uh, if you go to onticgolf.com, uh, you can uh, buy yourself uh, really a great product, uh, all customized uh, putters uh, available at onticgolf.com. Thank you, Bernie, for all of your continued support of the show. Uh, Sean Kelly, of course, the owner of linkedgolfers.com. Uh, linked golfers of course is uh, on LinkedIn which is a, a huge social media platform for uh, business types and linked golfers of course is the largest golf group uh, on linkedin.com and of course he's brought it out to his own media platform uh, linkedgolfers.com so make sure you check that out as well and lastly of course my very good friend Mr. Peter Doyle uh, from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you, Peter, for all of your continued support. Peter, of course, is a great teach professional as well as a club fitter. And uh, thanks, Peter, for all of your continued support and, and spreading the word over uh, in Ireland. Uh, many listeners tuning into the show from over in Ireland. So thank you, Peter, for all of your hard work. And on that note, uh, we're going to wrap it up for another show. Uh, this week, I will be back next Tuesday uh, on the Women of Golf show, of course, with LPGA professional uh, Cindy Miller, my co-host there. Uh, we've uh, got a great guest next week, and we'll have uh, some more great topics for you ladies out there, so make sure you tune in uh, to the Women of Golf here on the blogtalkradio.com network. So again, go to blogtalkradio.com. Uh, instead of typing Golf Talk Live on Tuesday, type Women of Golf, and it airs from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, on the blogtalkradio.com network. We'll be back next Tuesday with a show there. And of course, next Thursday, you can catch me back here uh, for another round of Coach's Corner and, of course, another great interview with my guest next week, which I believe is Mr. Peter Kessler is going to be joining me next week here on Golf Talk Live, so you don't want to miss that. Um, thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. God bless, and remember to tune in each and every week right here to Golf Talk Live. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>